Hi, I'm David Legere of Woodhall Press, and you're tuned in to publish this over lunch. Now, uh, this will be our last episode until January, so we look forward to another great year of exciting interviews, uh, probably mid-January, I think, maybe early January. Uh, today, I'm joined today by Monique Heller, a comedic writer and contributor of the upcoming Fast Funny Women on sale March 2021, wherever books are sold. Now, Monique was born in Connecticut, grew up in an exceedingly small town. She graduated from UConn with her BS in management and her MBA in international marketing. She's been wallowing in ABD status for a solid decade with no foreseeable nor definitive graduation date. Uh, Monique enjoyed a lengthy career in corporate human resources, where she was able to retire at the tender age of 40 due to making a killing with her stock options. Monique burst onto the global stage with the now infamous obituary of her legendary father. She's a married mom of two inspirational daughters. Uh, Monique, thank you for being here today. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, something I've asked everyone uh, uh, this year has been whether they found it inspiring in the literary world in 2020. But I'm going to add on to that question and ask you as we close out 2020, what are you hoping continues into uh, 2021? Uh, well, what I've been reading is I have immersed myself in both fiction and nonfiction as it um, everything I can get my hands on in terms of Italian culture, cooking, food, generational family issues. Um, I've devoured that. All right. That's good. Uh, now, you're also, you're, you're known as a funny writer, right? Even your uh, author bio that I just read had a lot of energy to it, enthusiasm. You know, and that energy that you feel, you know, it just comes through in your writing. And have you always been a naturally funny writer, or did you have to work at it? You know, if so, how did you go about it? Where did it come from? <laughs> I think, um, you know, if you had asked either of my parents when they were alive, they, they would say, out of the womb, funny. And sometimes that was a good thing, and sometimes that wasn't a great thing. I think humor mm -hmm. has always come very naturally to me, and I always try to find the comedic aspects of, you know, my everyday life. So, for me, it's not work. If I had to do a serious news piece or a doctoral dissertation like I've been wallowing in, uh, that's the because to me, it's it's just far too dry. It's too scientific, and I'm making people laugh. That's good. Is there, you know, just as you say that, I'm thinking, is there some go-to source you turn to? For hilarity, you know, like I get a lot of mine from Gina Baraka, right? Like she's kind of been a source for me over the years as an inspiration for comedic writing. Uh, do you have somebody like that or does it just kind of come out of the wellspring for you? <laughs> well, I love David Sedaris. Um, you know, he's one of my heroes. Um, you know, I love his series, you know, Amy Sedaris. And, um, but I, I think it really comes from my life and my friends and just everyday life. Um, my daughters, you know, as I said, were a source of inspiration to me. That author buyer was written pre-pandemic and pre-being quarantined at home with them for nine months. So inspired <laughs> me in different ways. <laughs> uh, so, so when you retract that, are, are they still your source of inspiration or is it now a source of frustration? <laughs> um, both. Um, it's, it's <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> That's good. 
Uh, so it's that line between, I, I'm always fascinated by the line between what's funny and what's not funny. Is there a line? You know, how do we find the line? Is there a line? What, what do you think about this? What's funny, not funny? How do you define that? <laughs> I think if you ask someone who, you know, made a joke about their father's death and wrote a very kind of Marco bitch, um, <laughs> doesn't find humor in virtually every situation that life presents itself. Um, I, I find, I find humor every day, everywhere I go. Um, I'm amused. That's good. And actually, you know, that, that idea of the line kind of gets into, we're going to, I'm going to ask you something uh, about that obituary after, because that, you know, that would be the line for people. They say, I don't know, the, uh, you know, obituary has to be very serious. Every obituary kind of reads the same, right? It's always like, these are the people that have continued. This was their life. It's very short. Yet you took an obituary and made it something so much greater. But before I get into that, uh, you know, humor and writing, it's, it's competitive. Um, you succeeded at it. And in fact, that obituary is a great part that we'll, we'll speak to, but would you tell us how you got included in the upcoming Fast Funny Women? You know, what drew you to this project? It's kind of partially what inspired this interview was you're a contributor in this amazing collection and I want to talk to you. <laughs> right. So uh, following the, the land, land swell of, of uh, notoriety and me following my father's death, um, Gina reached out to me and, you know, I reached out and so, you know, I know she was at UConn. I know she was affiliated with the Hartford Current. Um, what, what I didn't know was that she was compiling a new book. And as she started telling me about the book, and she said, you know, that the title of the book is Fast Funny Women. I think the funny part um, I, I was lost on, and I honed in on, it's a book about fast women. And I was like, holy cow, Gina's at UConn. Um, you know, my undergraduate years are finally catching up to me. I'm going to have to <laughs> in the jungle. You know, it's, you know, 30 years later and, you know, I'm getting busted. Something I did as an undergraduate. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating, if anybody listening, Fast Funny Women uh, actually has, I think, something like 38 UConn contributors are in that book. And, in fact, so many that uh, UConn Magazine is going to be doing a, a thing with it in the spring. I'm not sure what but um something's going to be going on with the with the contributors in this book and it's just such a, 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 a coming together of all of these you know people not just uconn alumni but uh it is interesting to see out of the you know there's like almost 80 contributors 75 i think contributors and 38 are from uconn which is significant there's a lot of funny people that come from uconn right <laughs> so You're it's good funny people <laughs> You know, I had the fortune of meeting many of them during my undergraduate and graduate years. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a scrapper little. Um, I mean, UConn wasn't my first choice, but wound up being my best choice. And, you know, I made it um, made out of Yeah. You know, a lot of people aren't aware that uh, I went to UConn, actually, for my undergrad, too. Uh, and it's the, I always tell people the story. They laugh because like, how did you choose UConn? And uh, you know, I was I was a kid. You know, I was like what, eighteen years old. And I go, I really didn't choose UConn. My um, parents chose UConn. It was the only school I applied to. Be why? Because they loved UConn women's basketball. It was like the thing to do. And I remember at the time, I was like, I don't want to go to school. I'm like you're going to school. 
And then they, you know, like kind of applied to UConn for me. And then I'm so grateful in retrospect. People always love the story. Like, how did you choose UConn? I go, oh, my parents love UConn women's basketball. <laughs> um, basketball wasn't as great when I was there. I think <laughs> get people to go to the pavilion to watch the game. And <laughs> go to NYU. And I got into NYU and... My dream really was to go to the Big Apple and my father, I think, just envisioned what his daughter would be like in that and said, absolutely no way <laughs> are you going <laughs> And um, by default, I went to UConn and, you know, I had a great experience. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've, I've taught at a number of uh, state schools over the years as well. And I, and I still teach um, at Southern is one, one of the schools I teach at. And I got to say, um, sometimes, you know, like uh, the state school has a certain like hunger to a lot of the students that I see that I don't necessarily see in some of the private schools that I teach at. It's like uh, this. Uh, they know what they want. They're going after it. And we do a lot of lessons that can be seen on that hunger as a student, because if you're just going for the degree, then who cares? But if you're going to actually learn something and apply it to your life thereafter, which I see in a lot of the, the state school uh, students that I teach, um, you know, that's, that's an interesting, I don't know, it's just an interesting takeaway I've seen over the years. Sometimes uh, the private schools, they sort of coast a little bit, right? <laughs> state by state school students are like hungry. They're like in it. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So for anyone that's not aware, um, you know, we mentioned this already, but you're known for an infamous obituary of your father, right? Uh, we, we have to know more about this, you know, and, and then ultimately kind of the question I'm going to follow up after this is does humor heal? But I'm curious, just tell us more about this obituary. This made you famous or infamous. <laughs> so um, for the past couple of years, I have kept a scrapbook of you know, notes of ridiculous things that my father has done, um, publicly humiliated me, what he's done to family members, and all in really good faith and from a really good place of love, not not of humiliation. And, you know, the last couple of years of his life were, were tough in terms of was, um, you know, his physical body was declining, but still very much mentally capable. And, you know, I had very honest discussions with him. You know, every day we would be driving to the doctor's or grocery store or picking stuff and said to him, you know, Dad, how should we how should we go about this? We know it's coming. You know, what do you want me to do? He said, I do not want a resume. He said, you know, I'm not defined by what I did for a living. I'm defined by how I touched people's lives. And I said, you know, if, if you give me the artistic license, I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with it. And in the hospital when he was, um, you know, finally to, hospice we were sitting around his bed um, he of course had moments of lucidity and he would wake up and tell a funny story one was was actually about installing a crapper in the backyard and um i recorded it still watch it to this day well, what are you talking about dad you're building a crapper um but that probably that he would have done in his in his heyday and so we had you know, just a great time growing up. He was, you know, always bringing home 
stray animals, um, stray people. He wouldn't turn anyone away and he wouldn't turn any free away either. So, you know, as I alluded to in the, the obituary, we had a house full of, uh, you know, his treasures that we, we had to go through, pour through, figure out really what was a treasure, what was trash. And you know, trash went back to dump where he typically got it from. And then we found homes for other things. <laughs> I, I love that. And, and, and that, so were you at all nervous when you published this or you were just like, oh, this is great. This is going out. <laughs> um, you know, I wish that I had, had written it while my dad was alive. I think that he would have gotten a great kick out of it. I think that he would, would still be amazed what kind of reaction we got, you know, well over a year ago. Um, we heard from all the world. And I think that it just touched a chord with people that, you know, here's an everyday, you know, Joe, for lack of better terms, here's an everyday Joe who was living his life and he had an impact. Um, mm -hmm. you know, inspired by Hamilton and, you know, Hamilton saying, you know, who keeps your flame and who tells your story? And, you know, I'm the keeper of my dad's flame. I am the teller of his story. And I wanted him to to be remembered i wanted the world to see him as the hero that i saw him as mm -hmm. i love that you know some of his funnier memories and some of the pranks that he pulled on on his friends and family and we all survived <laughs> <laughs> so then this i kind of already feel this answer but how does humor heal, right? Was the, the, the act of even writing that obituary a healing experience for you and the, and the laughter and the memories that come from that? I think for me, I mean, it was very cathartic. Um, I lost my mother four years before that, and that was a very different experience for me. Um, my father gave me permission to, to laugh, um, you know, at death and look at it differently. And so he gave me permission to, you know, to enjoy him as a person and maybe not to mourn what I did with my mother. Um, you know, my mother's death was um, you know, a major in my life. I think that he saw how destructive that was. And he said, you know, please don't do that. And, you know, he said, I don't even want you coming to, to my grave to visit me. He said, you know, if you're driving by, just, you know, wave, spit, do anything you want out the window. But life is, and that's what he wanted me to take away from that. And I think he would just, he really would just be so tick, tickled with all of this attention that his obituary garnered. Yeah. And, you know, kind of following that thought on, on this, this laughter and, and living your life, it's how much, you know, I'm curious about how much effort uh, it takes to retain sort of that sense of, uh, I call it the inner child, but it's that humor in our life, right? Like, how, how does that impact your writing? How do you find that hilarity? Because especially as we get older, you know, like, you just, it gets harder to hold on to that sense of humor, I think, and that laughter and that, and that inner child. So, you know, do you have any, you know, how does that impact your writing? <laughs> kind of a broad stroke question. <laughs> I think, um, you know, for me, um, you know, certainly writing about my father was kind of my, my personal 
Mo's project. So I kind of kept the, the tides at bay um, and I didn't let the grief wash me over. Um, I think that it also emboldened me because I saw that there was an audience for kind of my comedic tone. And so yeah. for I'm more bold, I'm more unabashed, uh, I'm not apologetic. Um, you know, certainly if I do cross the line, there there isn't a line that I've crossed that an edible arrangement basket hasn't hasn't made good. So I do times <laughs> I do you know, everything that comes out of my mouth is ninety nine percent funny. Um mm -hmm. Sometimes it is offensive, and you know I do apologize if I've offended people, but it certainly comes from you know a place of love and humor. Um, you know, but for me, I think it's easier for me. I'm more confident in myself. I'm more confident in my friendships, and if people don't appreciate you know my sense of humor for for what it is, then. Um, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> well, you know, that kind of touches on the idea, right? I, it's the, is, is it better to ask uh, forgiveness than permission, right? It's better to kind of, you know, like you said, send that uh, gift after the fact, send it after the fact, because so much in life, even not just humor, but opportunity, right? It's, it's seizing it. And don't wait for the permission that you can now make the joke. Don't make wait for the permission that you can go after these things, right? Just do it. And then if you kind of rub some feathers along the way, well, you know, that's why they have, uh, you know, forgiveness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, so um, you know, reflecting on everything you've created, I have a feeling, I, I know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm curious, what's the most difficult part of your artistic process and also kind of the most rewarding? So, you know, thinking on this, you know, you, I'm thinking probably what you're most known for is the obituary, but, you know, what's the most difficult part of that artistic process, but also the most rewarding? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I go to one of the scenes in, um, I believe it was, it's a, a Beautiful Mind, and David Nash is this genius mathematician, and in one of the scenes, his wife, I think, or his boss walks into his office and there are pieces of string um, going from every which way in his office to every other corner. And you walk in and you just say, you know, that man is absolutely crazy out of his mind. But to me, I understand that. I understand how that kind of random thought and idea process works. And so for me, how I conceive of an idea is, you know, I keep scraps of paper in my car, in my, my bedside table, in the bath, everywhere I exist, there's a pen and there's a pencil and I jot notes down. And so I take just all of these random pieces of paper and I physically lay them out on, you know, a countertop and I kind of piece them together. And I think that probably comes from, you know, elementary school when I learned to write on index cards and developing outlines and making, you know, themes. I'm a very visual person. And so to me, to see these thoughts laid out and then to try to construct stories around them where they make sense, that's really the process. Um, for me, the most difficult part of that is, isn't coming up with the ideas because I have plenty of, of ideas. It's actually putting them to paper where a reader would appreciate it and would enjoy um, what I was trying to convey. Yeah. 
You know, I, I was studying, uh, this is in grad school, uh, Bill Patrick gave this recommendation that I always liked. It was, uh, I, and I've done this with my own writing, is I have a whiteboard. And I don't know if this helps or not, but I love the whiteboard. Put it up, and especially when you're working on uh, your novel, or anything you're working on, just write two lines right across, right? And almost just start putting little check marks, like little little lines, breaking it up. And as you go up to each line, just put kind of the thought that was going to be in that chapter or, or in that idea. And then to just, for me anyways, just to visually see it laid out, a lot of times you'll feel like you can see if, um, if a, let's say you're working on your novel, if it's imbalanced, right? Maybe there's too much going on in the front. There's not enough going on at the end. The middle sort of like all over the place. So just being able to visually look at something, it's just powerful. And sticky notes, right? <laughs> I mean, I love sticky notes. It's great. Big fan of the yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so, you know, lastly, three things I ask everybody, because I'm just curious. Uh, first one, coffee or tea? What do you got? <laughs> I, I, some people will find this hard to believe, but I have never had a cup of coffee in my whole life. Um, so I am a, a venti chai latte, four pumps, skim milk, no water, extra foam, dash of vanilla and chocolate powder kind of girl. Oh. That that sounds decadent and delicious yes. <laughs> and, and sweet, all those good things. All right. Um, what gets you up every day? Do you have a quote, a motto, a song? What gets you moving and inspired every day? I, you know, I think it's different during the, the pandemic than before. Um, you know, before I was getting up early to, you know, get my kids out of the house. Now I kind of live for, you know, and I've, I've come across this phrase it's called Cal's Kalzari Kanit, um, mm. and it's a word, and it means getting drunk in your underwear, no intention of going out. And so I, I live for comfort clothing. Um, I live for my afternoon cocktail. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying at home with my kids um, and my cat and seeing my husband maybe an hour a day when he comes home. So really, I mean, I'm living for these these pajama moments pajama moments yeah yeah i can get into that even even in interviewing nobody knows right now if i'm just wearing sweatpants business up top you know <laughs> right, um, and, and finally what's one piece of parting advice or a tip uh for you know any, anybody listening mm -hmm. i think anybody who grew up with in a other um, will appreciate this and it's something that I try to instill in my girls every single day and it's um, you know always have clean water um, on and so you know I grew up with that was you know there was the grand inquisition whether I had clean underpants on or not but, you know, God forbid I went to the emergency room and um, you know <laughs> my underpants were my mother would have been mortified and so I am now passing this Italian guilt down to my daughters um, making sure they have clean underpants and I think as you know as I grow older this is going to be something that you know that I'm going to find humor in and you know maybe as a, a very old woman I'll I don't know or something into my underpants so in case I had uh, you know, in a car accident, they'll have me in the emergency room and the nurse, will say, oh my gosh, doctor, there's a toy dinosaur in her underpants. We can't work on her. 
um, then I'll know that I have a good life <laughs> if I'm rejected. Like <laughs> um, well, thank you again uh, for being here today, Monique. And, you know, be sure to check out Past Funny Women, available wherever books are sold, uh, paperback, ebook, and audio, audible.com, uh, published by Tantor Media, uh, March 2021. Uh, Pre-orders beginning this month. Uh, it should be, I think, up on the Amazon now. It, uh, you know, so yeah, so it's good to go. So, uh, and if you have any questions, or if you want to be a guest on the show, or any anything at all, feel free to email me at david at woodhallpress.com. And again, this will be our last episode until uh, January. So, uh, Monique, thank you again for being here today, and take care. Thank you, David. See ya.